1: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Our Wild World. Uh, over the past few weeks, we've been laying some groundwork about what conservation in the field, uh, the multi-layered and lateral thinking that has to take place for uh, conservation success on the ground. Some of our previous topics have been what can you do and what will you do, the uh, uphill challenge to conserve or the not always uphill challenge to conserve, and the economics of conservation. Today, we have uh, some special guests, some good friends of mine from Botswana, who are uh, here in the United States uh, doing some work. We have Dr. Kathy Alexander, who is uh, an associate professor at uh, Virginia Tech, and her husband, Dr. Mark Vanderwall. And we're going to be talking about uh, their project on the ground in Botswana, uh, called Caracal, Amongst other conservation conversations that we'll get into and uh, Kathy and Mark together founded and are directors of the Caracal Biodiversity Center in Kasani in Botswana that's at the very northern tip of uh, Botswana just across from Zimbabwe and right next door to Namibia. And Caracal is a field-based educational and research center that focuses on strengthening rural livelihoods, developing community approaches to mitigation of human-wildlife conflict, and securing the health of the ecosystems on which we all depend. Caracal is the only indigenous conservation and rural development NGO in the chobi linyati Kwando wetlands within the Botswana component of the Zambezi Basin. This facility, the uh, Caracal Biodiversity Center, provides first-class field laboratory in supporting research into the health of the ecosystems and the wildlife in the area with the development of the first regional wildlife health laboratory with both molecular genetics and bacteriological capabilities. So uh, WildEyes has been an important partner for Caracol, and Caracal's been an important partner for WildEyes, along with their technical partner, Virginia Tech. Uh, in providing for a series of proje- projects uh, that we're going to get into talking about. Some of that was relocating a snake park and building a level two biohazard field laboratory, uh, which Kathy and Mark both work in. And uh, in, in order to uh, facilitate their uh, research and data collection in both uh, TB vector research and mongoose populations, and water quality. So right now I would like to welcome aboard uh, Kathy Alexa- Dr. Kathy Alexander. Morning, and Mark- Ellie. Good morning, Kathy, and and we have Mark Vanderwall here also.
2: Good morning, Ellie.
1: Good, good morning. You sound like you're calling from Botswana, but <laughs> you're here in the U.S. So welcome. It's-, it's so nice to have you both here today.
2: And it's great to be here.
1: Well, thanks. So how about we start off and uh, tell um, tell our listeners a little about, about yourselves one at a time and a bit of your background and how that led you to to be where you are now and with Caracal. Cassie, why don't you go ahead and start?
3: Oh, thank you, Ellie. <clears throat> First, I'd just like to say thank you so much for letting us participate in this program. I think it's a, a really important initiative on the behalf of Wild Eyes and I think we need more like this, trying to bridge the gap between the average uh, person and science, science, which can often be packaged in a way that's not very digestible uh, for, for people who have a commitment to conservation or want to learn more about it. So I think that's fantastic and well done there. Well, thank you. Um, my, You know, I started out actually – Uh, working for the Botswana government, and that's actually where I met Mark. And uh, I ran wildlife veterinary services uh, for the department with a national oversight capacity. And in that role, we kept um, running into the same problem that you're trying to put out fires after they've already started and that there was just so much that, that the Botswana government was confronted with. They have a very strong conservation agenda, and yet there are so many fronts where ex- action was needed, and it's hard within uh, a large government. And then as the only veterinarian for the whole country, it became difficult to um, really address those needs. So then I left – uh, the, the government and then my husband Mark joined me shortly afterwards to establish an NGO which is Caracol that would try to partner with government and other agents in the country to affect change positive change in bringing together natural resource management with communities and with government, so that we can improve stewardship and rural livelihoods at the same time and in that process I then uh, we then made the <clears throat> the recognition that we needed a, a greater technical foundation to achieve some of our objectives. And with that, I then uh, took an associate professor position at Virginia Tech, which has been an amazing partnership as well to bring all the latest state of the art technological opportunities and advances to Caracol's grassroots, um, uh, bottom up approach. And then our partnership with WildEyes has allowed us to really, I think, um, achieve a very different impact uh, unique to uh, the setting that I've just described and I, I'm real proud to be a part of that group of people that have, I think we're, we're beginning to make some impacts there and I think it's communities and government and NGOs uh, together with wildlife working together hand-in-hand hand to to try to develop a common vision.
1: That's great. I mean, and that's why we work together. Um, we have a common vision. I'm glad you mentioned that. That's a good phrase and that's how Wild Eyes works is with finding like-minded people and organizations on, on the smaller scale that works directly with people on the ground that can liaise and uh, coordinate and collaborate with other NGOs and with governmental, organi- uh, governmental uh, side of that. Right. Uh, Mark, Mark, tell me a little about tell us a little about your background and how you came to be here with Caracal, or were you just dragged along with Kathy.
2: <laughs> no, that, that came later, Ellie. Um, my, <laughs> my, you know, um, I'm not quite sure um, how I actually got into the conservation field to start with. Um, but I come from a fairly professional family, uh, mainly medical doctors and um, uh, microbiologists and um, all university graduate um, siblings. Um, and I probably, you know, probably the most influential part in my life was growing up in Zambia, in northern Zambia. Um, I spent a good part of my formative years in the Benguelu swamps. And out of the family, I'm really the only one that's gone into the environmental field. And Stayed um, in the swamps. Pardon?
1: <laughs> you're, you're the one who stayed in the swamps.
2: Yes, in the Banguela Swamps. My my parents, my parents, my father um, uh, was a mission doctor there. Oh, okay. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I kind of grew up there during my school holidays and things like that. And I I think that might have been the, the, you know, the period that influenced me most. And um, I eventually ended up, you know, trying various things, but ended up in the biological field and um, worked my way through to a Ph.D. in Botswana where I did my field work on migratory zebra and wildebeest and then uh, took up a position in, in the government um, as a principal wildlife biologist in Kasani for eight years. And uh, it was during that period that I actually met Kathy and I think she elaborated on how we went forward to establish the NGO. I think the one thing that she didn't mention um, was that, you know, when we were working for the government, um, her being a a vet and me being the principal biologist and in charge of the northern area, um, we took on a number of orphaned animals and we developed a kind of ad hoc orphanage where we lived and looked after a number of different um, animals, you know, from Predators, through to birds and um, various other smaller creatures. And what we realized very soon, having had these animals, was the value of having these animals and exposing school children and not only school children but the general public to these animals um, where they could actually experience these animals hands-on and face-to-face. And that is where I think we developed the idea of um, establishing a field based um, educational tool which was the biodiversity centre where we could take on animals that are orphaned, injured, um, and 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 uh, you know, various um for, for various other reasons and use those animals outside of the classroom to provide a Better understanding for people of what these animals mean and how they operate within the environment, and why there is the strong need to actually look after not only the animals but the environment in terms of not only the animals' futures and the environment's futures, but our own future. And that seems to have worked extremely well, and hence the establishment of the Biodiversity Center and a a facility that 's now slowly getting onto its feet and growing every year
1: well that's that 's excellent you bring up um, a really important uh, point that I noticed after many years in africa in in the in a difference between here in the west let 's say and what happens in on the ground in Africa in wildlife rich areas is that here in the in the us we have so much access let's call it tv or internet computer to um wildlife uh films and and wildlife knowledge where what i found and i and what i hear you saying is that in africa on on average the the local people the the, the relationship they have to their wildlife is usually one of conflict or they don't know about it they don't have the same access to the documentaries let's call it uh and the the film work and all the information that's going on that we here have to understand the the niche that wildlife fills so the biodiversity center uh and this is one of the reasons why wild eyes uh partners with caracal because of this important criteria that it it relates what's happening with wildlife conservation technology to the local people on the grassroots level that's why it's so important
3: Uh, i have to say ellie that that you're absolutely right there and i mark did a wonderful overview of of where the collection came from and he's deeply passionate as i one of the things that we've talked about quite a lot is that um you know we do have a culture of enjoyment regarding wildlife and that's not something that as you've pointed out that people in africa have so how do you transition people who dislike a resource into a A a group that's going to have positive stewardship. You can't look after, sell, or appreciate something you hate, and I think that's a really hard. It's
1: an important barrier to overcome. That's that's the crux right there, wouldn't you say? How do you get some? That's it. That's it. So that's everything we've been talking about for the last several weeks, and that has direct parallels to here in the U.S. We've already managed to extirpate many of our apex predators and our uh, carnivores over conflict for our resources. Africa hasn't done that yet, but we can see it heading that way in terms of the loss of lions um, and uh, hyenas and other complex uh, carnivores. And, uh, so let's, let's explore that for a little bit. You, you put that very well, Kathy. How do, how does Caracol, and maybe you can give me and our listeners, um, what Caracol literally stands for and how Caracol goes about creating that bridge, uh, and turning, um, that feeling of dislike of a resource into something that they, we all need for our very survival. Well,
3: um, you know, <clears throat> One of the things that we wanted to do in the naming of Caracal, because as you think about what you want to do, often your your name is is the first thing people think about, and we wanted a, an acronym that engaged the idea of balance, that 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 there needs to be balance, that you can't have a completely you know uh, save the wild animal focus because there's no real place for that. Humans and domestic animals and wildlife they occur across the globe in different manner and different levels of fragmentation, but never. Nevertheless, there's always that interface and sometimes it's completely overlapping and sometimes given a protected area network, there's a bit of distance or land use change. But we wanted to engage the idea that there that it's all important and it's getting that balance uh, right so that uh, we have communities that have livelihoods. We have uh, domestic animals that are managed properly and not at the destruction of the environment, but can serve humanity as they need to. And then you have communities of wildlife um, that also have the same purpose of being maintained, not only for conservation but also uh, to to allow economic livelihoods to be generated from those land areas. So, the Caracal stands for the Center for African Resources, Animals, Communities, and Land Use. The idea that getting that balance between animals, both domestic and wildlife, communities that depend on these systems, and land use, all in uh, together in a way that allows each to do and serve its purpose in a balanced way, was what we sought to achieve or the bigger vision for Caracol. And I have to say that um, that's one of the, the things we really enjoyed about Wild Eyes is that uh, a lot of um, NGOs have a very, you know, save the tiger or save this a- animal and uh, it, almost in isolation. And there is some discussion of local communities, but it, it's never really the holistic view that I think WildEyes supports and, and why our partnership has worked so well is that, you know, if people cannot live their lives the way they need to. Whatever they need, they will take. And whatever they have to do, they will do. Each and every one of us, if we examined our lives and we thought, are we going to um, save the coyote or make sure that my daughter has shoes to go to school, I know that I am choosing my family. Now, as much as I love wildlife, if I was confronted with that choice, that is what I'm going to choose. And so knowing that, you cannot have this sort of singular focus on a particular animal. Although I do think that sometimes that sells better to the general public um, because you know there 's magic in, in you know in in the tiger or the leopard or the lion, but ultimately it comes down to making sure that people are healthy and able to have lives that allow them to look after their environment in a way that 's not destructive if you don 't have what you need to survive, you take it, and without that balance it 's a lost battle
1: you 're absolutely right, and this is what we 've talked about many times that conservation wildlife conservation really is about people. And if we can fulfill um, four, four basic securities for people we 're also filling those securities for wildlife, food security, social security, which is by by which I mean uh, a place in your community and uh, the ability to survive and procreate and 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 have a family, economic security so that you can continue your livelihood and phys- physical security uh, safety from Uh, either dangerous or predatory or annoyance or pesty wildlife. Um, a lot of people think in terms of the danger of, of wildlife or, or, excuse me, the danger of people to wildlife. Here in the West, we have a tendency to think of, oh, we have the luxury and the, um, desirability, as you put it, to protect animals. Um, as we go on safari in Africa, but not often do we think about what is it like to live with this and, um, how do you have security from an elephant or a baboon that's trying to get into your crop or a lion that is getting off your, uh, trying to get into your livestock. So conservation is, is having to deal with both sides of this coin. And you put that very well. Um, one thing I also noticed is like, Being outside in a village surrounded by the bush, wildlife, and the elements and the silence and sounds of the wilderness is really unfamiliar unfamiliar to the urban ear, the western ear. And it makes one feel very tiny and exposed. And it changes your perspective and narrowing it to a much smaller worldview of immediacy and in concert with ancient forces. And your survival, as you had said, Kathy, becomes the priority where he... Where we here in the West are rarely without the safety of our urban suburban and exurban neighborhoods and conveniences, so about the only time we in the West feel really tiny and exposed is when we 're recreating in the out of doors for that nature experience, and even then we don 't have the variety of predators to can- contend with. And uh, here in the West, people continue to be surprised when they have a wildlife encounter or they look at it as uh, an excitement or an activity as opposed to a survival sense, where in Africa, it's just the opposite, wouldn't you say? Oh, How I do. You do think-
3: when, um, Go ahead. I, you know, I just wanted to say, and I know Mark's going to have something to share on this, is that uh, if you look at the news, though, we in America and, and and the like, we still have the expectation of absolute safety in our national parks. Exactly. And if that is not, if that doesn't happen, if something, some negative encounter results, then there has to be some wildlife destruction. There has to be a reaction. There's a public, you know, cry, and then um, our government is faced with uh, trying to manage this. So we we really have zero tolerance. Um, and it's it's remarkable that there is this expectation of wildlife to range free and and yet there's a huge you know people are upset if deer eat their flowers Uh, you know they don't want uh, coyotes to take their chickens and and so there's uh, you know I think it's that bringing it back home to understanding your gut reaction to wildlife and it's not really very different Uh, it's at a more basic level often in these rural areas in Africa where it's not just your chicken that you were keeping as a pet it was your livelihood your source of protein for your children so obviously it's an even more extreme test or challenge of of your ability to um, sustain loss and still appreciate the source of that loss and and that's a real that's a real uh, test of how to structure conservation management policy so that you on the one hands still continue to have those animals but you can you can somehow address these issues which are incredibly stark when you you know only live off $100 a month for example
1: right so you bring up a, um, a good point there or Mark do you have something to add
2: yeah Ellie, it's um, you know I think in in the past you know a lot of wildlife conservation we've mentioned parks and you know these um, protection of island resources. And, um, you know, it's it's been a situation, I think, of separating people from wildlife um, environments, you know, sanctuaries and things like that. But um, if you look at the more developed uh, countries in Africa, like South Africa, for example, where a lot more wildlife now is actually conserved outside of the national parks in these totally protected areas. And the reason for that is that a lot of, Um, The the general public, the farmers and people like that have come to realize that um, actually wildlife can play a role in our economic lives and that there's some kind of value to wildlife other than just a zoo or a park where you can go and visit and, and, and be entertained by that. And I think this is a good lesson to take home is is when we talk of communities and people living with wildlife and we look at Botswana. Botswana has a very low population, and that's one of the big advantages, human population, that is. So there's a tremendous amount of wilderness out there. But there is this discrepancy and this paradox I think that that we um, live with in terms of wildlife conservation, and that is it's almost you know the a situation is that those who have and those who do not have and you know the the do not haves are the people living in the western world that will go out on safari and spend a tremendous amount of money to go and and uh, take photographs and visit African countries to experience that wilderness. And then, and then the haves, the people who are actually living in amongst all of those animals and in the wildlife. In a way, you know, the Western world feel maybe they don't appreciate the, their situation, but I think it's the other way around. People don't appreciate what these people are actually having to live with. And it's a cost. Now, what we're trying to do, and, and I think this is the way conservation really needs to move in the future, Is, is to get the people that are living with wildlife and with the environments and in these environments is, is to actually understand that those environments are something that they can use to improve their livelihoods. There's this, in Botswana, there's this um, history of dependence on agriculture and subsistence and living outside of the environment or manipulating the environment to satisfy your own needs and what we're hoping to try and achieve through education through environmental protection through working with communities is that wildlife can actually not only provide them long-term security um, just by protecting those environments because we are part of those environments because that's a very difficult concept to get across to people. Is, but they can actually benefit on a day-to-day basis. And so when we talk of poverty alleviation and things like that, people can actually live in those environments, live in with wildlife and utilize wildlife to improve their their own personal um, living standards. And this is something that uh, um, is almost Um, alien to a lot of people um, in a lot of African countries. And I know there are a lot of programs that strive to to try and do this. You know, there are these community-based natural resource management programs and things like that, which kind of come up, they flourish for a little while, and then they disappear. Until we can actually get people to understand that we're part of that environment that we can utilize that environment and if we look after it it's the proverbial golden goose that you know we we can actually live in harmony with the environment and we can benefit each other
1: excellent um, you bring up some really really incredible points and i want to address a couple of those and i think right now we're gonna head into a break and um, we'll be back shortly and uh, hope you tune back in
0: w-i-l-d-i-z-e dot o-r-g streaming live the leader in internet talk radio voiceamerica.com you're listening to ellie weiss and our wild world
1: Welcome back, everybody, to Our Wild World. We have Dr. Kathy Alexander, Associate Professor at Virginia Tech, Wildlife Veterinarian and uh, Founder and Director of Caracal Biodiversity Center, and her husband, Dr. Mark Vanderwall, uh Biologist and Co-Director or um, and husband of uh, Kathy Alexander for the Caracal Biodiversity Center in Botswana. Uh, right before the break, Mark was bringing up some incredibly important points of what we have to face and the mindset that we need to reorient and what conservation has to work with in terms of living with wildlife. And he brought up an in- interesting comment the haves and the have nots. Here in the West, we usually typically think of the haves as though those with wealth, and uh, the have-nots is those without wealth. Mark brought up a very interesting perspective and parallel that that, that sort of relates to that wealth, the haves who have wildlife and the have-nots who do not have wildlife or do not live with wildlife. Um, I thought that was an interesting point, and maybe Mark and Kathy can expand on that a little bit more.
2: Either one of you. well you know um, the if if one looks at you know conservation and 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 the way things have evolved in the past i mean the the environmental wealth of europe and north america and possibly asia as well you know has has declined over time largely through the impacts of um you know human behavior and the the striving for development, but as as the popular world population grows, it, it seems almost as if you know the environment and, and wildlife has to make way for um, the human population, and um, what, the situation that uh, we have at, um, in, at present time is that um, it's it's almost as if you have these. People that are, that are not exposed to wildlife, you know, the the um, Western world conservationists who um, very often love to sit and um, criticise in a way the um, lesser developed um, uh, continents and and countries that still have wildlife, and that. Th- you know, whatever uh, people in Africa, for example, are doing is not good for the environment, and so therefore they need to change their ways of living and this, that, and the other. Um, but there is this um, this gap, this bridge, where people living in the Western world don't really understand, and Kathy alluded to that earlier, about how people in Africa actually... Um, suffer because of uh, the environment very often, and particularly wildlife. And where you do get conflict, uh, particularly with the larger animals, there there is no space in people's lives that are living with these animals for those animals, unless we can change that mindset. And
0: exactly.
2: it, it's a big challenge to to get the Western world to understand how Africans actually have to live within the environment and with wildlife but at the same time it's a huge challenge to get people that are living with that those animals to also try and see the positive side and you know until you can get people to actually understand how to live with wildlife and benefit from wildlife it's going to be very difficult for them to want to conserve those environments and We sit in Botswana at the moment with a situation where people are saying we don't actually want wildlife in our areas where we live. We have national parks. Animals can stay in the national park and stay out of humanly settled areas. But what we know from... from other countries is where, um, conservation succeeds is where you actually have people that are living with wildlife that want to live with wildlife and can benefit from, from those animals. And I think there is a situation in Botswana where we could use the country to develop these kinds of programs successfully and use those as models for other countries where you have higher populations of humans, um, where wildlife is suffering tremendously and one only has to look at the present elephant situation uh, across the continent where um, it is becoming quite dire and where good management of those elephant populations in southern africa actually leads to problems for governments in managing those animals because of what's happening in african countries elsewhere where elephants are not being tolerated are being heavily utilized for their ivory and also not only just for their ivory, just through intolerance. People just don't want them around. So it's a a really big challenge to change the mindsets of the Western world as to what conservation in Africa is, but also to change the mindset of the African people as to what conservation means for them.
1: So right there, you've you've said it in a nutshell, the gap between what... Western conservation is and what conservation on the ground in Africa is. There's two different sides of this coin um, which goes right back to what you said, the haves who have wildlife but don't want it and then the have-nots who don't have wildlife and expect somebody else to want to live with it. So that's the biggest issue that um, we in conservation uh, especially in Africa and even here in the U.S. um, are, are dealing with. So what are some of the projects that caracal is is doing um i know wild eyes has funded several uh in, critical parts of what caracal t- does to in, enhance the ability of Caracol to um bridge this gap can you briefly tell us some of the the projects that you're doing and uh whether you think they've uh, accomplished bridging this gap gap
3: well, I think Ellie um <clears throat> what we've tried to do is look at where the hardships are the present the largest challenge to improve stewardship, and what I mean by that is that what do people need so that they can be in a better position to look after the environment, to see that benefit that Mark's talking about, to, to get beyond the immediate crisis of the day, to look forward and, and see how they can integrate natural resources in a more balanced way into their livelihood and the and, and household food security. And again, it's not just community level, it's the household level. So how do you get these benefits to trickle down? How do you allow people <clears throat> who have a predominantly agricultural-based livelihood history um, as wildlife populations grow due to good management, what can they do if agriculture is constantly under attack? So, for example, um, with wildlife's help, uh, wildlife's help, we built the biodiversity center where we have classrooms, uh, where we have animals that – communities can come in and see and not be afraid they're going to be killed. I mean, how do you actually get to like anything that every time you see it, it's a point of danger, either an elephant's going to kill you or a snake is going to bite you and you grow up knowing these animals are a source of death and harm. And so the Biodiversity Center allows, as Mark alluded to, communities, both children and, and the elderly, to come in in a safe environment and develop that culture of enjoyment. You see kids walking and screaming and shouting and, and, and people nearly fainting. You have no idea how terrified people are of these resources because they do, you know, I mean, I don't know. How many people do you know that have actually died from a wild animal? Uh, you know, in America, it's quite a rare occurrence. Exactly, yeah. Uh, and you know, in in Africa, it wouldn't be. You, you know, your uncle got killed by an elephant and, and your auntie might have been bitten or your grandfather was bitten by a snake and died. So it's a constant part of your life. It's part of the fabric of your life. So to transform that, they need to be able to go somewhere where you're not, you know, killing the animal before you get a chance, uh, to actually see what it's like. So there's that.
1: This brings up a, a huge, um, in, uh, intersection between, let's, and this just occurred to me from what you were saying the zoo situation, the captive situation here in the U.S., where we go to be entertained by viewing these animals in a captive situation, versus um, the wildlife situation, as you were just saying, you have to live with um, the everyday presence and danger, possible, probable danger of living with these animals. And the exposure, where here in the West, we're not exposed to wildlife until we, as we had said earlier, are recreating in a national park. And even then, we're thinking in terms of our recreation and the surprise when we have an encounter with a bear or a a mountain lion versus... Yeah, go ahead.
3: I was just going to say, you know what strikes me about that? um, That's an important... Feature of every every country is that the people who have money can afford to go on safari and see animals in a safe environment, or to go camping. Uh, you know, they can get in a car and go to Yosemite or go to a national park. Um, people who don't have money. Don't have those luxuries and so they never get to see wildlife unless they go to a zoo in the United States and that's where zoos across the world perform an amazing role of or, uh, um, of allowing people who don't have the resources to go into the wilderness and experience a bear to appreciate that this, this is an amazing animal that that, uh, that you can look at its eyes you can see it move around you can see it with its young uh, you can read about it and all of a sudden a bear isn't something in a, in a book that you may or may not have it's something that you, th- you would like to see and you're really excited and you might go and watch TV in Africa it's not really too different if you think about these uh, it, it's not different at all actually they, you have communities that live in next to a national park for example they're not going to go walk out to go and look at wildlife and their only experience that they do have is very negative Government tries to take them into the parks, but how do you do that when you've got hundreds of people? You take them in large trucks and they get in the back, but that's then only going to be the little kids because you can't take the elderly in that kind of an environment. So you always have this real barrier um, that it's it's foreigners that come in and enjoy the wilderness or the wealthier African set that actually has developed uh, an interest in wildlife. But local communities and as the poor in America or the middle income that can't afford lower middle income that can't afford to go off somewhere camping. Um, it's the same thing that this is a resource that has sort of a mystery to it. Either you're terrified of it or you don't care because you've never seen it. So that's why these, uh, you know, holding animals as ambassadors, that's what zoo animals are. They're ambassadors for their, their, for the entire population and and showing us that they're important. If you remember with um, uh, the the flipper, nobody cared about dolphin friendly tuna really until flipper was a program and everybody went, oh my gosh, this is like my dog spot and I just, oh, I, I couldn't bear to see a dolphin die. You know, you've got to relate to an animal. You've got to appreciate it at a very basic level before you even even if you're not afraid it's going to hurt you. Um, you need to be able to relate to it, and enjoy it before you even care about it at all.
1: I agree. Um, I agree with you a hundred percent. I'm not sure that it actually translates. And I'm, we we can have this conversation another time. I would love to continue it. That um, you know, a zoo here in the U.S. actually translates to um, seeing that animal in the wild. Uh, oh no, no, I, I meant like the, the the
3: biodiversity center that Mark yeah was talking where, about, where you can actually go and see an animal that you wouldn't ever be able to see, really, given your your economic status, given where you are. Um, and given your fear of an, of those animals, you exactly. can come into a safe environment, and you can say, "Wow, this is an amazing creature." And so as I was saying, these kids come in screaming, a um, terrified, some actually fainting, leaving the, the the biodiversity saying saying that they want to now uh, be game ranchers, and they want to be biologists, and they love snakes, and it's it's absolutely extraordinary the transformation that comes about from that kind of exposure, which again is possible because wild eyes help us help us. Put up that initial facility, and uh, we see nearly two thousand children a year, and numerous adults. You know, hundreds and hundreds of adults, and and you know they walk in a certain person, and they walk out a different person.
1: That's incredible. and That's what's so wonderful is it does begin to bridge that gap. Um, yes. And I think, go ahead, Mark.
2: Yeah, I just also just want to add to this, Ilya, is, is that you know one of one of one of the big um issues in, in conservation, I think as far as the general public are concerned, let's call them lay people, is that, you know, conservation's also about the big and hairy. You know, it is about saving the lions and the tigers and the elephants and things like that. And what happens is that uh, other environmental issues that are more subtle, that are not in people's faces, tend to fall by the wayside. And one of the objectives um, of the Biodiversity Center and what we want to try and get across when we talk about environmental education and conservation is to show people that that there are smaller things that are equally important in the environment as the large animals and things like that. So the Biodiversity Center, um, you know, we focus on the smaller things, although our research does encompass the large animals and the people and things like that, but it's also... Where do all of these things fit into the environment? What is the importance of those creatures in the food web? You know, it's, it's that holistic approach that we were talking about, you know, that conservation is not just about elephants and lions, that conservation is about the environment and every little thing is important. The fish in the waters, the insects, the, the snakes, the, the, the small mammals, the health of the water systems, the health of the environment, the vegetation, you know, and, and that I think is also a very important part of what the Biodiversity Center is doing. So that it's, it's not just a zoo where you can come and, and, and look at animals, but you can learn about the environment, you can learn and, and, and handle the creatures, you know, and even if, even if you don't get through to people, you know, and and they turn out to be ecologists, having gone through an hour at the, uh, in, at the biodiversity center, what you're doing is you're actually focusing people's minds on something different. And it's not only the school children, but it's the decision makers, it's the general public that come through there. And I think that, that is, as Kathy says, a really, really important component of the biodiversity center and where Wild Eyes has helped us to develop this. And we're hoping to expand that where we can pick out important examples. I mean, some of the research that Kathy's doing now through Virginia Tech there in the environmental health issues, these are hidden issues that affect everybody's day-to-day life, affect um, uh, the tourists that come through the the town, and affect. Um, the animals living in the environment, and you know, we need to be focusing a lot more on important issues rather than too much on the, uh, you know, uh, the the big and the hairy as uh, or the the tree hugging issues. You know, it's absolutely, really, it's really really important to look at everything from a holistic point of view mm-hmm. and include all those political, social, and environmental issues. In one. And the biodiversity center, I think in terms of educating people and, and just exposing people to this, to, to, just to, to stop them in their tracks and think about it. I think if one can achieve that, you're achieving a tremendous amount.
1: I think you're absolutely right, and you mentioned two really key phrases. One, both of you, um, Kathy and Mark. One is a safe environment to interact with wildlife, what could be possibly dangerous wildlife, whether it's a a zoo here in the U.S. or uh, the biodiversity center, uh, in Africa, where you can have a hands on experience. And as Mark just said, stop for a minute and focus totally on this issue and understand the role that the the large and especially the small uh, creatures that we fellow earthlings that we live with play in our biodiversity health and that's what a lot of this show our wild world is about is understanding it's not just us and them it is about the interconnectedness of every being uh, on this planet and how it works together to provide the ecosystem that we humans benefit from, the free services our Earth provides. They depend on wildlife, the insects, the, the ants, the, the mice, not only the charismatic megafauna, but the critical trophic levels below that, uh, every every niche that creates what this planet is. Absolutely. And so I, I think, Mark, you had said you had to sign off and – Um, I'm not sure if you need to go, and Kathy and I can continue.
2: Unfortunately, Um, yes, Ellie, I do. Um, But it's been a great pleasure talking with you um, once again, and um, I'm sure I can leave you in Kathy's good
1: hands. (laughs) I think so, and thanks so much, Mark, for being here, and I'd love to have you back again, and perhaps we can uh, coordinate this to Skype from from Botswana and uh, back on the ground there.
2: Absolutely. I'm sure we can do that.
1: Excellent. Well, thanks so much, Mark.
2: Thank and, you. Uh, too Ka-
1: All right, and Kathy,
3: um, we- you know, Lee, I, I was going to mention uh, uh, add on something very important that you're you're talking about, and that's the coupled nature of our in- ecosystems. That that we live in isolation and we can choose or not choose to have animals and ecosystems that function around us is 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 not accurate. We we depend on these ecosystems as much as the animals do. And when animals start, uh, when biodiversity and animal communities start to fall apart, and system function starts to fall apart, that starts to affect humans. So we end up having an effect either proximally or distally on our on our own health by virtue of our effects both in terms of pathogens and toxins on these environments and 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 you know you mentioned in the beginning and and i didn't really explain that you know here's this education center but we have a bsl2 lab in partnership with virginia tech sitting in the middle of uh you know nowhere and why would we need to do that and and that is because of this that as we do things as we change And transform our landscapes we change water quality that water quality has influences over animals and over ourselves and and it that that uh continuous interaction and effect and effect you know as it goes back and forth we do something it changes something it changes something for us again and so for example one of the things we're seeing is um, antibiotic resistance across, uh, you know, even in the middle of the National Park, one of the projects that you're funding is our mongoose work, and we're looking at banded mongoose to understand the health of these systems. They live very intimately with other wildlife, they live with humans, and we're finding that m- many of these mongoose, even in the middle of the National Park, have antibiotic resistance that comes from human sources.
1: Exactly, and this is a, an interesting point that I'm, I'm not sure everybody always understands. Once again, we get into the the thinking that it's human interaction onto wildlife, um, and what Caracal taught me very well, and which is very fascinating, is wildlife uses human systems uh, where we come in, whether it's a lodge or a village or just passing through, wildlife adapts to humanity and and has adapted, And as humanity goes through and changes the ecosystem, as you were saying, and we have these um, uh, uh, unanticipated effects on the ecosystem, what that does to the wildlife. And one of the projects that you mentioned was the tuberculosis vector research with the mongoose and um, how the mongoose are using human waste management or lack thereof and transmitting this disease and I know Caracal has done a lot of work on that and it's spread even further into some of our other projects with uh the buffalo and um how is Caracal um translating this research into the local community so that the, you can bridge that gap and helping local people understand how this uh um this 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 bridge affects both people we have about well, four I, minutes to our close. So just um, really
3: I think what well, I think what you're saying is that there's the, the- the coupled nature of these systems. The health of animals is affected by the health of people and in turn the health of people is affected by animals and there's pathogens that we share. Now mongoose have this new pathogen which you've been helping us uh, study. Um, It's in the tuberculosis family. It's related to human TB. We really don't know where it's going or even where it's coming from and how people who are immunocompromised might be with other diseases such as HIV AIDS might be affected. But mongoose uh, provide that sentinel. So what we need to understand is that it's the holistic view of communities, their health, they're challenged with TB and HIV-AIDS and how those health impacts challenge the way they can engage rural livelihoods, um, poverty, and how that changes the way you extract from the environment, whether or not you're just living for today or you're able to plan and manage for tomorrow. And I think as we seek to engage programs um, that address conservation needs, as we've said before, and, and I know that WildEyes is a champion of it, we need to be progressive. We can't be, um, have our head in the sand and, and only want to save wildlife. We have to remember the context that they exist, the context that the human population exists, and manage those challenges to the system so that we develop balance and hopefully sustainable management of natural resources and healthy rural livelihoods. And it is possible. There will always be costs, and it will be messy, and there will never be one tidy answer. But it is that engaging that complexity that is going to be required for us to have a tomorrow where we see wildlife at all.
1: And that's an important point. Um, You've summed it up beautifully. And uh, that's what we hope to uh, get across in this show, Our Wild World, is um, in some of the subjects that we've covered, how you can help, what can you do uh, toward making conservation a part of your daily life as opposed to an additional activity, five easy ways to conserve. We need to um, start encompassing, these kinds of thoughts into our daily, hourly lives and make conservation a life way. And what we're trying to help people understand is that it is convoluted, it's not linear, it's lateral thinking, and it's multi-layered. And there are many projects, such as Caracal, that are doing this on the ground. And hopefully uh, you've tuned in and uh, you can always send us an email or ask further questions. Uh, you can uh, visit our website, www.wildeyes.org, and learn more about the Caracal Project, learn more about how WildEyes functions in terms of uniting a variety a wide variety of projects that se- seem unrelated, but through this discussion that we've had with Kathy and Mark today, actually are very integrated in terms of conserving um, and changing the mindset of what uh, we need to live not only as humans, but as uh, the wildlife community in, if you want to call it, a harmony for the future. Um, I'd like to say thank you very much, Kathy. And I understand you have an upcoming TED Talk?
3: Yes, uh, I'm really excited. Uh, Virginia Tech's going to be having a TEDx And so I'm excited to share. And I just wanted to say quickly that your program spells out the fact that we can all make a difference. And even if it's a small one, it's still a difference. So don't sit on the side and wait for big programs to occur and hope it turns out okay. You're taking effort. Everyone, no matter what the scale, can have an impact. However small, it's an impact.
1: That just goes to show each of us can make a difference, whether you're here in the United States or whether you're in a little tiny town on the, the outskirts or the, the edge of a national park in Botswana. We can each make a difference. Each of us can become involved. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website. Um, you can certainly visit uh, the Caracal Program and uh, contact WildEyes at w-i-l-d-i-z-e at wildeyes.org and we would love to have Kathy and Mark back on. We would love to hear from our listeners what questions you might have in terms of what you can do and uh, the wildlife that you're living with in your backyard, whether it be a positive or a negative experience. Uh, We would like to talk about that. So uh, I'd I'd like to say thank you, Kathy. Thank you so uh,
3: much for having us on, Ellie.
1: We covered a lot of uh, important territory that we could go into more and more and more. So I would love to have you back.
3: We look forward to it.
1: Great. And that's Ted, uh, Kathy has an upcoming, uh, TEDx show. You can, uh, we'll have a link to that on our website. And uh, you can also find Caracal Projects and Kathy on, uh, YouTube and our website. So I think that's it for today. We're going to wrap up. We'd love to hear from you and, uh, give us a call or send us an email. And once again, thanks so much, Kathy. Have a beautiful day out there in our wild world.
0: W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G.
3: Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel.